Damn, son, where'd you mint this? What's up, everybody? This is Pattern Recognition, episode 12. I'm Chuck Anderson, and today I'm joined by Emily Yang, aka People Pleaser. Really fun to talk to Emily, someone who has really risen to prominence uh, in NFTs in the last couple of years. It was really fun to get to know her. I've not spoken with her before. Her and I had never met before. And I know that she's done a lot of interviews, done a lot of press, and I really wanted to use this time with her to go a little deeper and understand how she's felt as she's navigated everything that she's been through the last few years and how it's tied back to her, you know, upbringing and her artistic journey and how, you know, what it feels like to kind of zoom from taking these sort of you know, more behind the scenes roles at a studio that she's worked in the past to, you know, now directing projects with, you know, Bruce on, a, on this new Bruce Lee anime that she's working on with Bruce Lee's daughter on working on, uh, you know, these music videos with Linkin Park that she's collaborated with one of her favorite artists on and just other projects that she's done, her project Shibuya and White Rabbit and just all these really incredible, very fleshed out, very well thought out projects that just seem to be really, I don't know, she, her as an artist, I feel like has really blossomed and come of age quite quickly in public on the internet in front of, for all of us to sort of bear witness to in the last just couple of years. And I think it's been just really exciting. And it's a very different journey than I experienced myself just in terms of how quickly things and how publicly things have unfolded for her. And I think just a really exciting voice in the internet and in NFT space and in design and art right now, someone who I, I really can't wait to just watch uh, how, as she grows and, and her career continues to unfold, you know, just feels like it's real early days for her, which is pretty wild when you consider all the stuff she's doing. So anyways, this was a lot of fun, really enjoyed ha having this conversation with her really inspiring one. For me, I hope it is for you as well. Uh, thanks again for continuing to support the show, uh, minting it on Zora, listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever else. And uh, yeah, I've got some really fun other interviews lined up in the coming weeks, and uh, I look forward to sharing those with you as well. But without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Emily Yang, aka People Pleaser. All right. Today I am joined by Emily Yang, also known as People Pleaser. Emily, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. You are. So we've established that you're on Eastern time and I'm on Central time in Chicago. I did not ask where you're at. And everyone always assumes New York. Are you New York? Or are you somewhere else? I'm actually in Toronto uh, right okay. now. Yeah. I just got back from New York last night, actually. Um, oh, I was okay. there for the weekend. Uh, we were watching the Enter the Dragon re-release. Um, oh, nice. Just like the Bruce Lee movie that they were... Because I think it's like the 50th anniversary of that movie. So they were playing it in theaters again. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, a, but it, it, it's only happening in the U.S. So when I was crossing the border from Canada to the U.S., the border officer was like, what are you coming to do? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch a movie. He's like, you're coming <laughs> to the U.S. to watch a movie? I was like, they don't play. You're like, this is none of your business. Like, <laughs> <laughs> are you ba you're based in Toronto? Um, you know, I think for the past two years, I've just been kind of based nowhere. Um, I'm mm, nomadic. Yeah. So, tell, um, tell me, tell me about that. What, what's, is that a COVID fallout thing or? You know, it, it kind of was. Yeah. Cause I was living in New York, uh, just before COVID happened. And then, then I lost my job. Um, and because I'm not a U.S. 
a resident or citizen or i mean i was on a visa but then when i lost mm -hmm. my job i lost my visa and then so okay yeah i just had to sort of give up my apartment in new york and then um i went back to taiwan around that time because there was no covid uh, and i was staying with my parents and then i feel like you know when things started opening up um and then i started getting into crypto work uh, which allowed me to be more remote it was like the first time that i didn't have an office job and then so yeah when you have the opportunity to just travel and be everywhere i feel like it's very tempting especially yeah. after being locked inside for so long that um it's just hard to settle down somewhere but yeah i would say it's been like two years now i'm getting pretty tired it's probably mm -hmm. time to find you know a longer term place again where have you spent the most time in recent years? Is there someone you'd want somewhere you'd want to land ideally? What's the is there like in your head you picture yourself in New York long term or Oh man, I think that's the hard thing about being a nomad. Um and beyond that, I think just from a young age, I've moved around a lot. Um okay. you know, I spent time in Taiwan and then I also lived in Canada and then I went to school in the US. So um, I think that growing up that way, you really get a taste of, you know, every place. And so, sure. um, you know, you're like, oh, well, the food is so cheap and great in Taiwan, but then it's too hot in the summers. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, LA is great because the weather is great, but then the traffic sucks. And you're like, oh, right. New York is great too. You know, so you kind of like take all the goods and bads of each places. And then you have a hard time deciding who's the ultimate winner. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've pretty much... I haven't moved around much in my life. I've pretty much always been in the Chicago, Chicago area. I lived in like Michigan for a few years. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty rooted in Chicago now. So I've never had that. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, I enjoy traveling, but I never moved around. I didn't go to college either. So that didn't like bring me anywhere. So it's always fascinating to me when people have that antsiness of, of like not being really settled. Cause I don't know what that feels like. So I'm kind of fascinated by that as a, just as a, concept or even moving around a lot as a kid like we really didn't we just kind of stayed put so i've known a lot of people who have just felt like there's multiple places that could be home do you work differently when you're in different places do you feel like you so you're in toronto right now do you feel mm -hmm. how does that how does that affect you creatively i mean do you feel more i don't want to not to like a corny question of like are you more inspired there or whatever but does the location well, I will seem say one thing is that the main downside of being a nomad is uh, my ergonomics are always absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were sitting in some like wooden kitchen chair like half the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure I can probably compile a really hilarious album of photos that I take of all my various setups and the different Airbnbs that I post up in. And sometimes they're they're just like absolutely terrible where I'm like stacking <laughs> books to become a standing desk. It's like super ghetto. <laughs> um, so I think maybe, yeah, sometimes things like how ergonomic my setup is will sort of foster a more creative environment. I will say that I just spent a whole entire month in Montreal. I don't know mm. if you've ever been there. I have. Um, yeah. Been a while, but I have. That's okay. That's really cool. Cause I, I feel like it was my first time there and I was like, oh, I'm just going to go there for a month and see and check it out and see how mm. it is. And honestly, Montreal is awesome. Like I feel like for the longest time I've been hearing people tell me how awesome that place is. 
especially during mm-hmm. the summers. And then it's just kind of a concept that you hear about, but you're not really, you're like, oh, well, I've been to New York. So, you know, how much sure, yeah. can it be? But <sighs> then when I got there, I was truly amazed and impressed. And like, I I don't know what it is. Maybe like water is different there. Like the people are just so like artistic and liberal and relaxed. And there's like a very European vibe. Um, and I think maybe it has to do with the fact that their winters are so cold that probably everybody hibernates. So by the time summer comes around, yeah, you know, everyone just is just unleashing all of their pent up energy that was harvested throughout the winter. Um, so that is truly an amazing place, which I feel like um, that artistic kind of liberal environment really fosters creativity as an mm-hmm. artist as well. Yeah. Do you feel um, do you feel like you need that sense of because you know, New York obviously is such an appealing idea for everything. Every artist considers it at some point, whether you end up there or not. If you visit there, you're like, oh, this is this must be the place. This is and I've always liked Chicago because for me, it's it's a big city, but it's the community is small enough that I always felt like it was a lot easier to stand out and kind of wave the flag of being from here. And I felt like when I was first starting out, there weren't a, there weren't many other artists or designers like me doing what I was doing. It's like everyone was in New York. And I was like, well, if I kind of plant here, then that feels like I can kind of own that and become synonymous with the place and not get lost so much in the shuffle of New York. But obviously that comes with, you know, things you're sacrificing. So have you felt that way at all? Like, or is it not really been a concern? Um, You know, I feel like I really only started be being a let's say a self-sustaining artist yeah you're um, as of like two years ago it's quite new and then so it really came after like the post covid you know very online era yeah that's very much not yeah it's very much not defined by you know your sort of physical location and you know i've moved around so much that um i guess it kind of works for just like my lifestyle Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I, I guess, you know, and, and when I first started doing, you know, my art too, I, w- I was, um, I guess, anonymous. Uh, you know, I, I, I just like came up with the moniker people pleaser. And then I, yeah. I was not using my, you know, I was like every other person on crypto Twitter, just like using a random like avatar, you know, as my profile picture and stuff. And then so, um, yeah, I think it, w- it was like very much of a rise of like the internet, it felt like the mm-hmm. internet was my home, you know, and, and it, yeah. it did start during the COVID period too. So um, around, I mean, COVID, I traveled from like New York to Taiwan to London. Um, so like all these different places that, um, yeah, I just really didn't feel defined by my physical environment. Sure. That's super interesting. I think I, I'm really interested in uh, the, when I've talked to artists who have been doing it for a really long time independently versus more recent. And that's something I think that's really defining for you right now as you've experienced a lot, it seems like in the last just couple of years on the, like with the focus on you as an independent artist mm-hmm. and, and director and building up your own projects um, compared to the time you spent prior to that at the different, you know, kind of, jumping around to some different opportunities. I know, you know, you were at the, like the big kind of story was going to blizzard ever having wanting to work at Pixar and just all that kind of stuff. I wanted to ask you about, and this is something I think I ask just about everybody who any, any artist I'm always really interested in, especially people who have kind of come up on the internet and learned a lot via the internet, but you also went, you went, where'd you go to school again, by the way? And you were in the, Uh 
Yeah, I went to school at UCLA. Yeah. And you study, what, and what did, what did you study there? I think I remember you from one of your other interviews, but. Yeah, I was studying design media arts, but it was really sort of like a very broad um, program um, okay. where you learn a little bit of everything from like front end programming to graphic design to okay. physical game design. Um, and then I feel like towards the end, it's kind of like on your own accord that you have to choose um anything that you want to sort of focus on and it's not really like taught in school Mm -hmm. yeah so you were i know i've heard you mention that you then were spending a lot of your time teaching yourself 3d because you kind of found what you really wanted to do so i want to ask about that because i spent i mean in like the early 2000s when i got my first hacked version of photoshop when i was probably like 15 years old and um, there were no tutorials online. There was no YouTube yet. I would go to the bookstore and I would basically get these books that had like these tutorials and you kind of follow these steps. And oh, now I know this thing. And now I, and I just, I, it's like all I wanted to do. Like I had have friends in the summer out doing stuff and I would be in my basement on the computer, just like in Photoshop. Cause I just got so fixated on learning and understanding and growing and, and teaching myself all this stuff. Um, that really became the foundation of of my career. So what were some of the first... Well, was there one particular software that you decided to go really in on? And where did you start? Did you like... That's just such a fun, fundamental question I like to understand because it's so intimidating to start anything, especially when you're teaching yourself. Yeah. Did you have a mentor or anybody who like held, held your hand a little bit through any of those first things or... What was that um, like? Well, I would say that, you know, my curiosity, uh, I'm just naturally a very curious person and and probably artistic, you know, ever since as young as I can remember, I just, I've loved drawing, doodling. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, yeah, I started drawing as young as I was like three or something. Oh, yeah. And then um, when I was in elementary school, I remember, you know, being in class and then um, whenever there was art class, the art teachers would always tell my mom like, oh, you should send your daughter to art school. She obviously loves art so much. And then then I think when I was around like sixth grade or fourth to sixth grade um, in elementary school, I discovered obviously, you know, there was like the like like the Internet, you know, dial up Internet at the time. And then um, I discovered HTML. And, then, yep. you know, so I was like sort of like that you know, Neopets, um, MySpace era. And then, so, you know, I started teaching myself HTML. People didn't even style with CSS back in the day. So it was just pure yeah. HTML styling. And then, so I would learn to sort of like code my own little, you know, like cursors or, you know, like animating um, yeah. like themes of my pages. And then, and then I, and then, you know, I would move on to other, there was this, I remember this one um, software called Micro Angelo, where it's literally just like a, so good. It's like a, I know it's so good. It's like a thir- 32 by 32 pixel canvas. And then, so you'd literally just draw like, you know, draw each pixel one by one, and then you can add a new frame. And then, so you're kind of like frame by frame animating this 32 by 32 pixel mm. canvas. And then, you know, that's at the time how people made like, you know, really small um, uh, GIFs or um, cursors that were animated sure, yeah, like yeah. that. And then, so then I had like that era. And then when I got older, it was like this, I'm blanking on the name now, but it was this knockoff version of Photoshop. It wasn't like paint shop pro. I can't remember. No, it wasn't there was, that one. There was paint shop pro. There was Corel, Corel draw and Corel paint were two really big ones. Those were probably the two big ones, paint shop pro and Corel draw or Corel paint. There was a, <laughs> this, I'm going to, 
these are some things that anybody who's like, I mean, I'm third, I don't know how I'm 38. So there's people who will never have to know these things, but there was a program called Kai's power tools. Do you remember that? No, I, I mean, that... I was, I was mainly in Taiwan at this time. So a lot of the tools that I was using were more, you know, popular in Asia, which I think okay. is very different from what are popular mm. in, in the U S so okay, I, I'm honestly blanking on this, but it was not like a mainstream software, but it was very much like Photoshop. So I definitely went through that phase. Um, <laughs> and then I think that all the way up until uh, college was, you know, my first year at university was when I watched Wally for the first time. Yeah, and right, then I right. just became fixated and I was like, this is what I want to do. Okay, <laughs> so yeah. then I, yeah, I went down this whole rabbit hole. I literally just Googled, how do I get a job at Pixar? And then while well, they were like, well, you know, learn, you need to yeah, yeah. all these 3D programs and then all this stuff. And then, so yeah, I just like went down this whole path. And I remember one summer I came home to Taiwan and I told my mom that I really want to work at Pixar and I, you know, I need to learn these programs. And at the time I was mostly just watching tutorials online. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that I had like a mentor, but um, I did uh, one summer when I was in Taiwan, asked my mom if I could go to uh it's almost like a cram school for it's like a you know like a boot camp or something for learning okay. 3d sure sure and then so so yeah i um you know I, I went to that i think it was like a one month long thing um to sort of just get up to speed and then what i was learning there was uh, autodesk maya and also um mm. a little bit of nuke i would say and then um afterward i i think i just continued the sort of self-learning journey when i was in university for my second year and third year um, and then after my third year, I started applying for jobs. And then I got a job at a visual effects studio in Vancouver called MPC. And then uh, just on a whim, I decided to, uh, at the time, what I thought was dropping out of school. But well, by the way, was that your first time? That was your first time in Vancouver? And had you ever, like, did you know anybody else or were you just totally on your own? Um, I actually lived not in Vancouver, but it's called Delta, which is like way outside of Vancouver. Um, okay. when I was super duper young. Um, but you know, that was so long ago that I didn't really like keep in touch with any of my friends. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that upon going from UCLA to Vancouver, it was definitely a fresh start. Like I just, mm -hmm. you know, my motivation to pursue this dream of like animation or Pixar or whatever it was, was so strong that I, you know, there was no fear. There was no anxiety yeah. about like, Oh, I don't know anyone there. It was just like, I'm going to move there and do this job. And then I'm going to work at Pixar. It's such a beautiful thing at that. It, like, you know, I, I don't think, you know, yeah, when I was 18, I just thought like, Hey, as long as I can stay up until four in the morning, like, and get up at like eight and then just keep going, I can put in my hours and I'll just keep going and keep getting like a, one little job here. And that'll turn into like a more medium job. And then maybe one big job will come through. And if I could just keep doing that. And I'm not really thinking it was more of a desperation thing, especially not having gone to school. So similarly to you, you just kind of think like, well, I just got to keep grinding it out. And, but it doesn't occur to you as a thing that you might not do or have time for or energy for, because when you're like 18, yeah. 19, 20, it's just like, it doesn't, it just doesn't cross your mind that you have that invincible feeling, which I think permeates into your creativity and your output of just like, I am just, you know, if you're motivated enough, if you're like kind of wired in that way, you're just willing to go extra mile after extra mile until it takes, cause it's so exciting. The prospects of like what might happen. I think that's what was really addicting to me was just like, 
getting in, waking up one morning and there was an email from a potential client. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, it's just like Christmas morning kind of, kind of thing. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I just remember, you know, my first day at the studio being super starry eyed and seeing all mm. the movie posters of the movies that they had worked on. And I was like, how big was like, this? Oh, I've made it. Huh? How big was this studio? This was the VFX studio. You said you got the job at. Yeah, they're called MPC. It stands for Moving Picture Company. Sadly, they actually shut down their Vancouver branch um, mm-hmm. now. But uh, I don't know how many people they have. But it's, it's, it's a relatively big one. I mean, there's only a few big visual effects studios. Um, and this is one of the biggest ones, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It was definitely big. Their headquarters is in London. But I think they also have um, locations in like Montreal, I think in India. Um, they, I think they even have like China. They have, you know, commercial branches in like New York, um, Los Angeles. Things okay. Like that. Yeah. 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 So were you... Did you feel when you got there that you were, okay, I'm going to have to fake this like for a little while? Like, I don't really know what I'm doing or did you feel pretty confident? Absolutely. Yeah. No, everyone. No, I think I... And you probably realize don't realize at the time, like everyone else feels like that. Just some people have been doing it a little longer. <laughs> for like, sure. But, you know, I think I want to say, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm a special snowflake, but I would say that I feel a big theme of my life often feels like I'm like bypassing or just like taking a back door or something. Sure, or just like by yeah. some kind of like magical luck or I don't know what it is. But at the time, um, this MPC like program was um, it was it was hard to get into. And then most of the people who got there were um, students who actually spent, you know, like four years. So there's upon getting into college, I realized they're like 3D, like they're literally universities dedicated to learning 3D animation, you know, yeah. and, and, and like, um, so, you know, and they have a lot of those in France, um, they have them in Canada. And, and it's just like the entire four-year program is you learning the ins and outs of making animation. And, you know, they're sort of like grooming students to either go to like, you know, Disney, Pixar, or, yep, or yeah. you know, these visual effects studios. And then so mm. their skill level is way, way, way far beyond So specialized mine. and yeah, yeah. Super yeah. specialized. I mean, you know, UCLA is a very much like normal, you know, academic school. Like, I, you know, I was still going to like math classes, and, you know, mm. you know, biology and things like that. Right. And then so... Um, upon entering this program, I could clearly see how much better other people's skill levels are um, compared mm-hmm. to mine. And I, I think that it must have, I must have convinced the the guy at the time in the interview to like allow me to get a job there or something because yeah. my skill level was just like nowhere near as good as everyone else's. So there was definitely that feeling of, oh, I'm really behind and I should, mm-hmm. you know, work harder to catch up and for sure imposter syndrome, which I feel like still carries over today to my career as well, because, um, you know, even I would consider, you know, artists like yourself or, you know, a lot of the artists that came up in the NFT era um, had these like long existing, you know, and prolific and successful careers as independent artists already preceding yeah, the NFT um, boom, right. You know, you guys all had a very, very large following on, you know, social media and stuff. And I did not have any of that at all. I basically like started at zero. And then, mm. so, um, it, it, it was sort of like another one of those, like, Oh, I feel like I need to catch up to all these people. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of, a, I feel just, like- it's weird to be driven by insecurities like that, because for me, even though I've been doing this for a while, like when I started, I had, you know, again, not having gone to college, and I like, and a big reason for that was was money. Like, it just felt so out of reach. Like, my parents didn't have money for me. I, I didn't certainly didn't have money. So it was like, well, I'll take a year off. And then a lot of stuff happened for me in that year off. It was some 
you know, really cool opportunities. It was just, and then I just kind of kept going, but there was, it was always driven by a little bit of fear. I think not in a bad way. It's not like I was, you know, like, but, but the sense that if I don't keep doing this, there's nothing else and there's no one's going to come save me. So I have to kind of keep pretending. And I think even though I came up at a very different time and made my name prior to NFT stuff, I still feel like there was a lot of, and we were talking about this before we began recording, and maybe we can talk about the idea of like anonymity a little bit now too, but being able to hide behind the internet is a powerful thing for an artist because, and really for any, for anybody, depending on what you're doing, but I was able to play up when I wanted to play up that I was really young. So like a big thing for me when I was 18, 19, I was getting press and attention for the fact that I was getting some clients and I was so young and it didn't seem like there was many other teenagers basically doing work for like Microsoft and McDonald's when I was doing it. And I was like 19, 20 years old. And so I would play that up. And if I ever got interviewed or anything, I would try to, okay, like, here's my chance to like dial that up a little bit. And then there was other times where, you know, there'd be a potential client and they wouldn't ask any questions. There was no, like, do you have a degree? There was, and I thought for sure someone would vet me. I thought for sure there'd be questions about like, my experience and can I see your resume before you hire you? And I was just, I never got asked those questions and it just would constantly kind of blow me away that no one cared. But I was like, well, I guess they're just interested in the work and that's really all that matters. Um, and there's a real parallel to, to that um, now with, uh, you know, the rise of, I guess, kind of the, the this very specific moment in time that you capitalized on and were able to, you know, take advantage of with crypto Twitter and being able to choose to what extent you wanted to be anonymous, to what extent you wanted to show your face. So anyways, I guess to that, and I'd, I'm curious to know, like how comfortable were you with starting to get some spotlight after now you've kind of talked about being sort of tucked away a little bit or being content kind of, and maybe you were content. I don't know. I shouldn't assume that, but it sounds like there was a lot of jobs where you're just playing a role, doing your thing kind of in a company or in a contract setting and then you started getting some attention and then you got a lot of attention and then the big auction happened. And then all of a sudden people know you, people know your name. So tell me a little bit about that transition from sort of more, maybe a little more in the shadows, even if you were getting some like local, if as it were spotlight or attention from people you worked with to like all of a sudden, you know, on a For bigger sure. stage. I mean, you know, like my version of, um, I feel like, you know, talking about the ups and downs are always the parts, you know, where audiences can relate to the most because it both helps them get through dark times if they're going through it right now or, you know, gives them hope or that there's always a lot a light at the end of the tunnel. And, yeah. you know, that's just life, right? It's just a constant up and down. And so I'll start with, you know, after college, you know, I was like, even though I, I remember I was only getting paid less than $2,000 a month. And this is Canadian dollars. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but I was like stoked, you know, in my head, I was like, I've made it. Like, oh my God. You know, yeah. This is, oh, 100%, yeah. yeah. I was like, I have a job. This is amazing. And then, so, um, you know, that sort of like young drive, um, kept me, you know, my passion alive for quite a few years. I learned a lot, obviously being in the film industry and working in visual effects. Um, I picked up a lot of necessary skills. And then I think after I, I've always, I've always been sort of an ambitious person. So after a few years of this, you know, I started being like, okay, well, how do I, you know, climb up? And then, you know, when you look at visual effects supervisors in, in that industry, uh, very, very rarely do you ever see a woman in a supervising mm -hmm. role. And then, okay. so I think that's probably one of the things that started to discourage me a little bit is, you know, it is a male dominated industry and it was very much 
um, obvious, you know, actually when I worked at Blizzard, um, I was um, not a a staff uh, employee. So I was like a contractor. And I remember in the entire department, um, I was uh, one of two women who were hired. Um, And me and both me and the other girl were uh, contractors. And in the history of the lighting department up until that point that I had joined, Mm -hmm. they had never, ever hired a single female staff member. All of their staff were men. And so being in this entire environment, it really is discouraging where you feel like, you know, people just don't assume that you have the same skill set or abilities just because of your gender. Um, But, you know, nevertheless, I was still, you know, hustling, doing the thing, Um, still being inspired, you know, working on these projects, like really big projects like the Diablo 4 cinematic or even just like movies like, you know, Batman versus Superman and stuff were, you know, I think the things that kept my passion alive. And then, um, then the pandemic happened. So then I, well, actually right before the pandemic happened, my contract, uh, uh, came to an end at Blizzard. And then I was not able to line up another job, um, right after. And then, so this is sort of when I think the first really, really low, um, downhill of my life started because Mm. there's nothing, um, that fuels insecurity, like not having a job or money. Yeah. Um, you know, it really just deflates your self-worth, right? You're like, and constantly, you know, interviewing for jobs and, you know, nobody hiring you. Um, it really makes you first question, am I ever going to get a job again? How am I going to support myself? There's all these anxieties and all your friends are at work, you know? And so, um, that was really, really tough. And then I definitely went through, you know, a lot of lows there. Um, so then what kind of started, um, the people pleaser account, and this was pre-crypto stuff too, was just, um, it was just me sort of looking for a purpose in life. And then, so mm-hmm. I just started, um, an Instagram account, uh, where, you know, I was like in between job interviews and stuff. I didn't want to just like be laying in bed and feeling like yeah, I'm wasting yeah, my life sure. away. I was like, I'm just going to give myself a purpose. And that's just to make art. Cause all these years that I had been working in visual effects, I was, you know, learning skills and doing things, but always for other people's visions. And I actually never got to exercise that muscle of what does Emily's brain look like when I try to mm-hmm. make art? From Emily's brain, you know, were, were you ske- were you sketching or like drawing or making stuff for your uh, just like for fun? Or did it become like, nope, that's work. And when I'm done, I go hang out with my friends, I go do other stuff like at that, you know, because once you have a job, it is it's hard. It's hard yeah. to even want to do that stuff. Exactly. So I think it's during the years that I was a visual effects artist, I did not practice art outside of my job, um, okay. basically. And then so yeah, this was the first time where I was like, okay, what would something look like if it, I was just making it for me? And then so that's how I started the people pleaser account, you know, and I, I think if you I don't have that many posts, but if you scroll back to the beginning, you can see all the like different styles and like yeah. you know, experiments yeah, yeah. that I went through. I just like didn't even have a style. I was like, what is my style? I don't even know. And then but it was fun just to like experiment and also yeah it was purely just the passing of time really and then so you know i started just building up this small library of work you know also trying to be like man how do these big artists like you know like yourself or like um all the other instagram artists like how do they get so many like followers you know did you have any other the the name the people pleaser name did you have any other ideas Uh, that you are glad you didn't go with like i feel like everyone has like if you if you have a, a sort of you know i have no pattern, but people also just know my name and I kind of use them interchangeably now, kind of like how I introduced you both sort of both ways. And I came up with mine with no pattern when I was 16. So like 22 years ago, and I'm just very lucky that I like it. And I think it's still good because when I think back, there were definitely some like not great, you know, when you're 16, 17, like you, you know, 
and, and any sure. age really, but coming up with the name is a daunting task. And I'm just glad I picked something and like stuck with it. So did you have any others that you were like, Oh, it's a good thing. I didn't do that. Or did you also did the PPLP? Like, did you start with that way? Was there a, per- did you like how the letters looked like? What was the, did you write it down? And you're like, Oh, that looks cool. You know? <laughs> uh, so I think it started with, um, I actually didn't have any other, um, ideas. I remember the the moment so viscerally, I was, you know, my phone was in my hand and I was creating an Instagram page and they were like, all right, what's your handle? And knowing this is going to be my art account, I was like, oh, well, my name is, you know, nothing special. So I need to come, you know, I was like looking up yeah. all the big artists on Instagram. I was like, they all have cool artist names. So I need to have one of those so too. Funny. And then, um, my personality type is, uh, you know, very much like a people pleasing type. And then, so it really was just one of those, like, Oh, I'll just go with, you know, it just like was one of those things that popped up in my head. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'll just go with this for now. It mm. at the time felt temporary. Um, and okay. I really wanted it to be um people pleaser with no vowels, because you know, I thought that was cool at the time. <laughs> and then I think that one was taken. And then so I started adding vowels back in randomly until there the the account was not taken and that's why it's spelled so weird <laughs> okay <laughs> i then, like that <laughs> but i really did not love it at the time i was like oh yeah this yeah is just not a, great but yeah. just just something so i can get my page started and then sure, yeah and then i just never got around to changing it um but i guess it stuck and you know later on i think people were were like you know i love your name like it's so relatable so i guess it was a blessing in disguise mm. looking backwards it's a it's a very utilitarian sort of pragmatic way to have come about a name like that out of just like I don't know I'll just keep trying you know one of the my favorite sort of things I ever got to witness and and see from a uh, you know a legend and a, a a late friend Virgil Abloh when he would want a um, a domain or like an Instagram like everything's taken and uh, and he was like well you know I feel like his whole thing was like well just like you know, there's two words in the dot coms taken, just put a few dashes in between. I bet that's not taken. So like, you know, it'd be like, you know, one of his sites was canary yellow is so the canary dash, dash, dash yellow.com. And, and it was like, stop wasting time thinking, just like put a bunch of dashes or underscores in there or whatever. And I was like, Oh, okay. I don't have to like worry so much about like some, you know, so for example, this podcast pattern recognition, uh, when the name was suggested to me by someone on the Zora team and I was looking around, I was like, Oh, there's already this other podcast called pattern recognition. It's like a finance podcast. And then like the other part of my brain was like, who gives a shit? Like, so what? And then I realized the last time they put an episode out was like two, three years ago. And I was like, you're good. Just stop thinking. That's like the perfect name. You know, it's the perfect name. Just stop. You're done. You got it. And so (laughs) I think naming things is such an interesting fascinating approach uh to sort of crafting like who you're going to be and so much of it is kind of done without a lot of thought like kind of not that yours didn't have a lot of thought but it was done out of like a i just need a name it just is what it is and then you really grow into it kind of like any brand name or logo or whatever um so yeah so you feel like you've grown into that name and you're happy with it and you're like like you know like it certainly stands out i mean it, it, it for whatever reason like the way that it looks like the, the lowercase, like, I don't know. It just, it's, it's very, it's, it's fitting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely grown on me or, you know, I have to love it now. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too what's late. given me, <laughs> yeah, it's too late to go back. It's what's given me all these opportunities that happened yeah. since. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm forever grateful and I, I am, you know, now largely a believer of 
you know, serendipity in life. And mm-hmm. I think so many other elements of things that I work on, the titles kind of come in a similar fashion or, you know, there's not that much thought put into it. And then, yeah, once it comes, it just kind of sticks, you know, anywhere from like Shibuya to White Rabbit. Um, these are all names that just kind of, you know, came to us and then it, it, it just sticks and then you just yeah. go with it and then, and then you fall in love with it. Yeah. So I've heard you mention uh, in another talk about how you, and it was very casually, but I like to get into this with people. So you said I was browsing crypto Twitter and I wanted to kind of be a part of this. And then all of a sudden it's sort of like, you know, and then, you know, I know you like all of a sudden just weren't like magically doing a lot of work up until that point. But um, what was your first introduction to crypto and to NFTs? Um, I think this is an important question that I've asked everybody just because again, like we're, you know, this is like Zora, you know, this, this whole podcast and everything. Um, I think what's brought so many people together has been NFTs or crypto to whatever extent you're interested in. Even if you dabbled a little bit, you probably have met some new person that you would not have met otherwise. And I just find that to be really fascinating. So, um, but what's the, what was the very first introduction to you for like, were you like, Oh, Bitcoin's interesting. Was it something else? Was it the art? Like what was the very first? Yeah, it was actually, I was still working in visual effects at the time. Um, when I was in college, I had already, uh, come across like Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And, but of course at the time I was just like, this, I don't even know what this is. Yes. (laughs) Um, But then in 2017, um, I had made a little bit of money. I remember I was living and working in London at the time and saved up a little bit of money. And then, you know, young me, naive, was like, oh, I'm rich now and I need to invest (laughs) my money. Yeah. yeah. I literally had like less than $10,000 in my account. I was like, I'm wealthy and I need to invest. And then so I remember calling my dad and being like, dad, I have money now. Where do I put this money? And then, you know, he just kind of laughs. He's like, what can you do with that amount of money? You can't. You know, you're like, just just keep living because you're going to need it. (laughs) Yeah, basically. And so, of course, you know, then I go to the internet because I don't know how to like buy bonds or stock, you know, and Mm. then I'm like looking on the banking app. Good for you. you Good for you to even think about investing. And most people like just kind of like, oh, I've got money. I can go either just put it in a savings account or, you know, very much an Asian mentality. But yes, you know, like Asians are always thinking about like, how do I make more money? Like, how do I, you know, turn my money into more money, I guess. And then so, um, yeah, I was like, you're looking at like banks and I was like, oh, banks suck. Like, you know, today's a Saturday. I can't even go in there and ask questions if I want to because they're closed. And then, so then, you know, I turned to the internet. I think I started with the r slash personal finance subreddit. Okay. And then I started reading um, about how young people, you know, invest their money. And then, you know, I started going down the rabbit hole and then I discovered the cryptocurrency subreddit. And then Mm. I was like, oh man, like, you know, this like Bitcoin, Ethereum stuff is really cool. And then, you know, started reading about blockchain. I was like, honestly, I feel like this, you know, idea of provenance like really makes sense and all this Mm. stuff. And then, um, but, you know, I was trying to be clever at the time. So even though I sold on the idea of blockchain, but really I wanted to get rich. (laughs) And so instead of like (laughs) buying Bitcoin and Ethereum, which were already, you know, the top two coins at the time, I was like, I'm going to look for the next big one. And then so I started like lurking all these like even Chinese um, forums. So I was like, people in China must like have the alpha or something. So I I remember just (laughs) buying a bunch of like random shit coins, like the ICO shit coins in 2017. Uh Um, So that was my first exposure to crypto. And then, yeah, I started following the cryptocurrency subreddits um, around that time. And then, you know, when 2018 happened and the bear market happened, everything crashed. And then so I was kind of like, well, 
uh, you know, I, I kind of rode the 2017 bull market, you know, sure. up and I was like, wow, I like tripled or quadrupled my money. This is insane. And then, you know, I was like telling my parents about it, super excited. And they're like, this sounds kind of sketchy. They're like, have you careful. cashed out yet? Or <laughs> basically, and then obviously I didn't cash out. Everything crashed. Um, they're like, how's that crypto thing going? And I was like, oh. ah, it's going. And I just like didn't talk about it for a while. Um, went back to working. Yeah. And then so it wasn't until 2020 when I, you know, was that in that unemployment phase. So both I was, uh, you know, making art for the sake of making art, passing time. And then also I was still on constantly on the hunt for alternative ways to make money. So then I was like, by the, by oh, the way, had you, had you associated art with crypto at all yet? Like had NFTs sort of even crossed your radar at that point? I mean, they, that was obviously super early, but yeah, no, they had not crossed my radar yet. So my first, um, you know, thing that I got back into was DeFi. So that was um, around the time that DeFi summer. Uh, so it was like, you know, mm -hmm. summer of 2020, DeFi summer was happening. Um, and I have this amazing friend. His name is Ray. Uh, he's the reason people pleaser exists. Um, he's been like a longtime Bitcoin hodler, you know, and then so he's like mm -hmm. really into crypto. And then I remember him being like, dude, um, you should check out like DeFi, you know, it's on crypto Twitter. There's all this like crazy stuff happening. And, you know, like, I feel like there's maybe like an opportunity for you there. And so I started, you know, mm. browsing crypto Twitter I, or first just like looking at DeFi about like ways that I could make money mainly. And then when I was browsing, I was like, man, like there's all these like people were, you know, promoting themselves using just like existing, you know, clips that they could grab from the internet or just like, you know, like memes that they were painting in Microsoft Paint. And I was like, there's no quality marketing material in the space but i feel like there's yeah. so much money and then so i was like maybe there's like a job you know that i could like create for myself here and i so i, I told my friend i was like be on the lookout for me for like anyone looking for you know anyone with artistic abilities you know because mm. i need yeah. a job basically and then so yeah then he saw it was like yearn which is this DeFi protocol that was like looking for a video editor at the time and then so he sent them my instagram of like my work and then I remember because I made this like piece that had like a, a a Nintendo Switch and then had like a Kirby thing. And then so there was this influencer at the time named Blue Kirby. And then he saw the Kirby thing. He was like, all right, I vibe with this. Like, let's hire her. Um, and then so I made my first um, animated video, uh, which was a Blue Kirby, like an animated Blue Kirby, like, you know, swallowing a bunch of Ethereum okay. and then spitting back out like a, a coin or whatever. And then they were like, wow, this is amazing. And then so and I did it in a very like retro like japanesey style and then it was just like nothing that like anyone had ever seen before in the space and then so then um the space was relatively small at the time so through through word of mouth it kind of like spread yeah. and then yeah. um at the same time what's around the same time was when i discovered nfts too but this was before i think artists started getting really into it so then sure, sure. you know yeah. i was like okay it's cool but um you know it wasn't like the big focus so but i was you know sort of like minting nfts around the time and i, I remember actually one time we sold a uh, me and blue kirby but blue kirby was the influencer at the time so it was like i was making the art but then he was selling it under like his moniker and then we had sold oh, okay. one piece for 50 ETH at the time which was oh, like wow. yeah yeah which was a lot you know but this was i think ethereum was like it was like 400 dollars, so it was only mm -hmm. 20 grand at the time but like you know to me i was like oh no. my god wait, <laughs> yeah yeah you know, i was like yeah. Oh, Fifty grand. I think this was in September of 2020, and I was like, "Okay, was okay, that on Super Air or something?" Or it was on Rarible. Um, okay, Rarible was one of the first sites that you right, know right. there was no sort of like um, vetting system, and you know I wasn't sure, sure. there. 
um, notable enough to get on any of the platforms. Basically, I have a funny story about this later. Um, and then so, yeah, uh, that's my first sort of, you know, touch with NFTs as I started minting stuff okay. on Rarible. But then I, I quickly realized that, okay, you need to have just like Blue Kirby, you needed to have like influence and fame in order to even sell anything. And then so that's sort of what I was working on was just well, I was making money, you know, being commissioned like these marketing videos for DeFi. But at the same time, I would put out these little like behind the scenes videos about how I make the animations because I feel like people found that really interesting. And that's kind of how I started building up a small following of very specific crypto degen audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. And then so then when I think the artists came into the NFT space, um, then I saw them like doing really well. And then that's how I heard about like super rare. And, you know, but at the time I still, um, I applied actually, I sent a video, like, you know, recording myself, like, hi, I'd like to be on super yeah. rare and like, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, nobody ever got back to me. Um, so I wasn't like getting on any of the platforms. And then, um, I remember I was working on the Unisop video at this time. And then this was when Nifty Gateway started really blowing up. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Right, I was right. like, man, all I need is just somebody to get me onto Nifty Gateway and then I can be rich. Oh my gosh. That was such a moment. I was just like, holy shit. Like literally if you, all the, it was like flip a switch and you were going to make like, you know, $800,000, like no problem. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So then I was like, man, I got to get on Nifty Gateway. And then um, uh, I guess, I I think when I was doing the Uniswap video, um, I was like, I know for a fact that this video is going to be a big deal because um, if any, this was when DeFi and NFTs hadn't really crossed over yet. And then, but everyone in like the DeFi crypto space, like was like Uniswap V3 is like the next biggest thing. And it just like had so much hype around it already. And I was making the, like, you know, the launch video or like the marketing for it. So I knew there were going to be a lot of eyeballs on this. And so I put, you know, my heart and soul into this video. And then I was like, why don't, uh, like we also sell it as an NFT. And then I was looking for a platform to sell it on. Obviously, um, Nifty Gateway didn't happen. Um, and then I think I had email like Jacob from Zora at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, like I'm looking for somewhere to sell this video. And then, um, I don't think I got a response. Uh, obviously it was like, they're probably getting like emails left and right around this time. Sure, you know yeah, I mean? So, yeah. um, in the end, it was actually, uh, my boyfriend who at the time, uh, was just starting his NFT company called Manifold. Um, and then he had given me an invite code uh, to foundation, like through a friend of a friend who gave him mm-hmm. my code. And I was like, all right, well, at least foundation is like, you know, a, a, a platform that, you know, you need to get onto. And then, so, um, that's why I posted the Unisoft video on foundation and it was my Got first it, okay. NFT auction ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know how it was going to go, but, um, obviously everything <laughs> after that, just well. like, <laughs> yeah, it was just like a whirlwind after that. And then I, forever became known as people pleaser and there was no mm. going back. Yeah. So, okay. So back to my original question then where I kind of got off on this whole thing of like the spotlight, how did you, cause you were very sort of, you know, quietly working your ass off, you know, on this project and like, hadn't had your moment yet. And then you had a very distinct moment. And like, again, my experience just for me personally was, it happened relatively things happened like relatively quickly, but like without so much of a social spotlight again, like early two thousands, just didn't have that yet. So it was gradual and it was happening more on like design 
graphic design, like message boards. And it just, it happened like progressively and yours was happening kind of behind the scenes. And then you had this real moment and then boom, like you're really on the map. And then there's that, okay, now what? Like, Uh how do I follow this up? So how did you, how did you feel like, was it all, I mean, and it, it can be, it's totally fine. If it was, did it feel like all good? And you're like, I'm just like, everything after this is just like, wow, what an amazing opportunity. I'm just going to have fun. Or did you finish that project and then feel a struggle? Like, how do I follow this up? This like massive splashy. I mean, if you do anything that ends up getting an article written about it in the NFT space, and you're one of the sort of splashy big sales that sets sort of a tone and puts you on the map for that. Like there's a sudden pressure or even a sense that most artists have never had to consider before. Now, what if I put something else out and it sells for less? Like, does that bring my market down? Like what's what's everybody going to think? How did you, how did you deal with that? I'm really curious to know like how you handled that. Did it feel pressure or not? Of course. It's only normal, right? You know, I would be lying if I said, Oh no, I got this. And then, you know, I feel like everyone has that insecurity, you know, we're in this really weird era where, um, essentially your entire income or, you know, what your work is worth or whatever it is, is put online so blatantly yep. for everyone yep. to see. Um, and for me to just sort of with my first auction to start with that, I was definitely like, how am I ever going to follow up to this? You know, I was like, I've peaked. I should just, you know, bow down, leave the stage and like never come back. <laughs> Would have been kind, kind of, of a cool move to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember though, at the time, um, I mean, I had so much imposter syndrome that, I, I I couldn't even, I had always, you know, set up for it to be a charity auction, right? But I just couldn't even accept that I myself could ever make that much money. Um, Because, mm. you know, at the time, the, the PPT sold for like, you know, half a million dollars. I was like, right, yeah. thankfully, this is going to charity because I don't even know what I would do with this money. Um, And so I think that due to the imposter syndrome and probably some insecurities, just like the money aspect was not, even though it was so much of what drove me initially, but when I sure, actually sure. got it, I was just like, Oh my God, I can't take this. You know? Yeah, and then yeah, so yeah. Um, I sort of just continued to make it like my mission to just make art that matters or like art to me that has like a meaning. And because my story is so closely woven together with the crypto space and, you know, the whole anonymity thing, because mm-hmm. yeah, I think, so much of it I um, attribute to the fact that, oh, this space was so new that, especially with DeFi, it was so much about just if you're putting out cool work, people were just happy to um, back you. You know, even, yeah. you know, I'm not criticizing the art or NFT space, but I think, you know, because of the NFT space having so much like precedence coming from the art world, there was mm-hmm. still very much like a judgment of like, you know, how many followers do you have? Like, you know, what's oh, your precedence yeah. before yeah. this, you know, that kind of thing, which obviously was not, you know, helpful in my case. Right. So I think that there was a part of me that felt like a strong responsibility to keep using art as a medium to also elevate the entire crypto space. And mm, so that's, yeah. you know, I think today still what I'm like continuing to do. Um, but the next, you know, opportunity, obviously after that sale, you know, was like a bunch of interviews, like bunch of opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I was totally overwhelmed, but I think that, you know, sort of my compass was just having this radar of, um, does this, is this actually meaningful to me and does it make sense? And does it, you know, follow my values of wanting to elevate the crypto space and like give back for the space yeah, that gave yeah. so much to me and mm. stuff. And then, so the next project that I really felt like, um, had that was the fortune, um, magazine 
cover. Right, um, right, yeah. So, you know, when Fortune hit me up, they were like, we have this upcoming feature or, or this um, issue that's going to be about crypto and we want you to do the cover. I was like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> suddenly, so, was that the first time seeing your work in, in print? Because that's a big... Yes. That's a big, oh, big yeah. thing. I remember the first time I ever saw my work in a magazine and it was this independent music magazine and I was able to go to a bookstore and pick it up and like it just... I'll never forget it. I just opened up to that spread and I was like, oh my God, like this is the pinnacle. Like I, to this day, as much as I am rooted in working digitally, I, like I, I, my sort of joy comes from seeing work on paper and, and seeing it printed. Mm-hmm. That's just really where like I, I love. But so for you, it was just such a, like a, a quick transition from like, hey, we're going to put your work it'll be online. Yeah. But you could go to a store, go to the airport and like mm-hmm. there you will be. How did that feel? Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, that was incredible. I think, you know, yeah. part of what made it so cool was because of the fact that they said you can put whatever you want. Like they were like, they were so free about it. They're like, you can That's put awesome. whatever you want on the cover. And then I was like, haha, well, you know, be careful what you wish for. Cause then I, you know, in sort of the same spirit of giving back to these people that have been like my supporters and this whole culture of like, you know, anonymous influencers and things like that. I just mm-hmm. decided to put all of the, you know, most famous crypto Twitter influencers with their avatars and stuff on the cover, you know, there's like Pepe's on there. Like if you were in the space and like in the know, you would instantly recognize like all of the characters. And then I think all of crypto Twitter was just like, this must be a joke, right? Like how is this possible that they're putting this like on, you know, it felt like an entire like giant inside joke that had just been spread out to the world. And then I think that's what made it such a cool moment. I mean, there were so many aspects to it. It was also obviously the top of like that bull market, you know, it was just like everything was like so crazy. So what I thought was, you know, my peak, which was the Uniswap video, I think I did not realize that just a short, you know, five months later, the Fortune magazine cover was going to be an even bigger thing. And like you said, it was such a crazy moment to not just see it in um, printed physically, because I'd never seen my work printed physically before. But I remember um, I was in New York and LA at the time, and I wanted to go buy a a, a copy of my own magazine cover. And then I literally couldn't get one because they were sold out everywhere. It was like such a big moment. (laughs) And then I mean, I would say still to this day, like nothing compares to that moment of like, yeah, it's you know, cool... every day I would log on Twitter, yeah. people are just tagging. They're like, I'm in London. I'm trying to find a copy of the magazine. And it's like literally sold out. And like, yeah. I was in LA, I called, I think like 10 different magazine stands and they're like, oh, someone just came in and like bought the last copy and like all this <laughs> stuff. But then when I was finally able to, I was like, I think this guy was like, oh, I was saving two copies for someone else. And I was like, well, actually I'm the artist. So I was hoping that you could like sell me one. And <laughs> then, then, then send you a then send you a package of like 10 copies of it <laughs> no he he was just like oh if you, what you're saying is true then i was saving these two copies for another customer but you can come in right now and then i'll sell them to you and then so when oh, i went okay. there um you know i filmed this whole video of like me buying it and stuff it was like mm. yeah obviously very very special um yeah i'll, I'll never forget that moment that's a cool thing because you can tell. Were you able to tell like your parents and like family, like, hey, you could go buy this magazine? Yeah, like when that crosses totally. over, and I didn't, I haven't asked this, but like you mentioned talking to your dad about what to do with money and like how, like how have your parents been like through the sort of creative journey? Like, w- was that magazine moment like a, oh, this is for real for them or anything? Or were there any particular moments that sort of elevated it from like, oh, like I hope she's doing okay or to like, Oh wow, this is like a real thing now. 
Yeah, I think that um, probably around the time the crypt- the Uniswap video came out, they, I mean, they were, I was in Taiwan when the auction was happening. So I was with oh, my okay. parents. Um, oh, cool. Okay. So I think they were like, okay, this is real. You know, like mm. this is actually happening. Um, but my parents are super open-minded, very supportive. You know, I'm always grateful for them. And so um, I think they've just been along for the ride the whole time and just, cool. just being like very wholesome, supportive parents, you know, yeah. and yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I feel like with, when the fortune cover happened, um, my parents were like super proud of me, but I don't think they were surprised either because, you know, they were around when the Uniswap thing happened too. Mm-hmm. Basically in their minds, I am like this mega superstar now. And then it's like up only <laughs> or are. something, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> like, were um were you uh you were like yourself right away like back to the anonymity thing you, had you considered being kind of behind a, a sort of internet curtain a little bit or were you just like no I'm gonna be like I have this name people pleaser but I'm also just myself like did it did it was it even a thought to be anonymous ever or did you were you just like eh, it's not really it's too much work <laughs> it seems like too much work def- for me make you paranoid it like was what? yeah but it. First, it's a lot of work. And also, um, you know, preceding the big Uniswap sale when I was doing, like I said, those, um, you know, behind the scenes animation, uh, uh, my mm-hmm. animation behind the scenes videos for my um, marketing animations. Um, I definitely capitalized on the fact that I was a girl yeah. in a space full of, uh, you know, degenerate men. Because, mm-hmm. um, As you should. It, it, was, yeah. it was easier to get um, attention at the time as a girl. So when I was doing these videos, I remember I would use my laptop, um, what like webcam and record a little, always like a tiny segment of myself, like in the mm-hmm. beginning being like, Hey, yeah. I'm Emily or people pleaser. And then, you know, here's a little bit of my, you know, and then like instantly it would just get, you know, at the time, which for me was a lot, like between like 20 to 40,000 views per video on sure. Twitter. Cause I was like, well, you know, people like the fact that it's a girl and things like that. And then so um, I was already, I would say, like doxxed before the Uniswap thing yeah, happened, sure. right? So Makes I, I guess there was no way. Yeah. yeah, there was no point for me to then go back and kind of, you know, try to erase that. Um, and I'm a terrible, you know, actress or trying to pretend to be anything else other <laughs> just, than me. It really so. does sound exhausting. I've thought about just making, you know, because I've like dabbled in so many different styles or whatever. I'm like, what if I did a whole body of work and made a new name for it and just was totally anonymous and just see where it goes. And then one day I'll reveal it if I feel like it. But even that, I was like, what if I'm like logged into the wrong Twitter account and I accidentally post some it's, and I was like, I don't know, maybe eventually if I really feel like the the pull, but yeah, I think it's a lot easier to just sort of be yourself with it <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely. So, okay. So, uh, at this point, are you fully, like, are you now no longer working like contract projects or working at a company or anything? And you're just like really doing your thing. Are you feeling like, okay, this could be my career now. This, this is, this might be it for me. I could keep kind of building on this. And, um, I think that moment happened way before then because I didn't have a choice, you know, I was, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was unemployed and looking for jobs for over a year. And then I sort of Uh, started getting into the crypto stuff, you know, almost out of like desperation because I really needed money. Um, And I remember like my last job interview was in November of 2020. So, you know, I had started the crypto stuff in in the summer of 2020, but I was still continuously, you know, my my goal was still to get an actual job, right? This was just kind of like passing myself by in the meantime. I remember November 2020, I had my last job interview. It was with a company um, that I had worked for before, but it was for their New York branch. 
And I just felt so sort of like looked down on and Mm. like rejected from that interview that I was like, why am I putting myself through this when I have this other thing that seems to, you know, be helping me pay bills and also serving me well. And then, so that was the kind of moment that I was like, I'm just going to take that path and run with it and see where it goes and not look back because I have to. Um, so yeah. And then, and then, you know, when like Uniswap happened and then fortune and everything, I was like, all right, it it seems like, yeah, there is a moment though where you're like, this is like, this is something beyond like maybe just this slow build of, you know, having this cool art practice and now people are really paying attention and like, you know, you're very self-aware and I like, you really are like, it's all the stuff you've talked about is like, even the way you felt in interviews or felt like I'm the only, you know, I'm the only, you're like, I'm the only girl in this, there's me and this one other girl. And that's it. I think that goes a long way into the decision-making in these really key pressurized like junctures in life is is like the awareness of where you're at. A lot of it was definitely financial. You know, I would say my insecurity for uh, instability still carried on, you know, even after the big Uniswap sale, I remember at the time to, you know, now very, very well-known VC companies, um, Dragonfly and also A16Z, Mm -hmm. um, both tried to hire me as and give offer me a a job. Um, And then I think, I remember at the time they were like, we don't even know what you're going to do. We just want to give you a job and then, you know, see what this role turns into. And definitely that part of me that yearned for a stable job for such a long time, especially during that period of unemployment and stuff was like, here's your chance. Like you finally got the job, you know? Did it cross your mind to take those or were you like, nope, I just know. Absolutely. No, I was very close to taking them. And then I think, you know, same with talking to my boyfriend who I'm forever grateful for at the time, um, gave me a really good piece of advice was he said, I don't know anybody who embarks on the path of entrepreneurship who then uh, goes back on that and reverts to, you know, being employed by someone else. And then because he said that, um, I was kind of like, okay, I feel like I have this courage to sort of, you know, continue down this risky path and see where it goes. That's awesome. I love to hear that. Cause I, as someone who did, take a stint working as a creative director at an ad agency at one point. And I still kept doing my own independent practice, but I did about four and a half years at agencies. Like I was still doing my thing and I kept it pretty divided. Like you would almost not know half the time, at least if you just looked on like my Instagram or whatever, that I was also working at this, you know, big company in Chicago, but, and then COVID kind of blew that up, which was great because it set me back doing my own thing, which is really what I'm meant to be doing, but getting a taste of that sort of, the idea of security and getting like a regular paycheck and especially ever having been independent up to that point for like 14 years. And then all of a sudden experiencing that was like pretty wild. And I'm like, wow, this people just get a paycheck every two weeks and it's just there. (laughs) And uh, I don't think I would have necessarily gone back on my own head, like COVID not kind of like, you know, thwarted everything. Um, but it was good to get a taste of that. And I learned, you know, in certain ways and all that, but you had already kind of put that time in and worked at those companies and experienced, okay, I could just be at a desk doing this job or I could do my thing and like really fulfill my visions of myself creatively. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I love these different journeys cause they're always so weird and winding and usually not nearly as, um, well, obviously like the Uniswap thing is a pretty big like moment, but, um, a lot of the just sort of boring stuff behind the scenes that like, I think culminate into even getting that opportunity are what's so interesting to me where there's just like, no, you're like, I'm grinding away, making these Twitter videos and they were cool. 
And they were like, fine, but that really was the building blocks of like all these other more, you know, leapfrogging opportunities that, like you said earlier in an interview, like these back doors that you find and they just kind of, <laughs> they come, you know, you do, you make something and you get an opportunity that's based off that thing you made and you just keep going mm-hmm. with it. So, okay, well, I guess to fast forward a bit to what you're mm-hmm. doing now and, and, and white rabbit and Shibuya and the, you know, I don't know, like to what extent you want to get into all the, the Bruce Lee stuff um, <laughs> that's going on, but um, what is your most, like what, what scratches the itch for you the most creatively now? Like in the director role, are you still, does, like, are you still sitting down to, and actually doing the drawing and making things and the animating yourself? So I know you, you know, you and, I don't know, like, I'd also like to ask about your partnership and, you know, relationship with Mache. Um, I'm saying the n- name right, correct? Yeah, it's actually Mache, um, Mache but I, okay. I call him Mache. Um, okay. It's just easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, I'd love to hear, like, kind of what, uh, yeah, like, what makes you happiest creatively now. And, like, it's awesome that you found such a cool partner, you know, for that. It know, really is. Truly every day I wake up and I pinch myself thinking, wait, am I really, you know, sort of working with Mache and talking to him every day? And then I'll get a message from him on Telegram. I'm like, okay, yes, this is real. How'd you guys Um, meet? Well, I mean, I've been off, I've been following him for a long time. You know, even in in college, I followed his work and, you know, Ash Thorpe, I think they're, especially if you work in visual effects, they're like the gods, right? Of of, of the people. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been, you know, following him for the longest time. Um, I remember it was shortly after the Uniswap, um, sale, I think that I was walking around in Taiwan and then I got a Twitter notification that said, oh, Mache Kuchiara just started following you on Twitter. And I was like, <laughs> it was April 1st. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you're like, joke? oh, is this a scam account or yeah. something? Yeah. I, opened it and then i was like oh my god and i remember i literally tweeted about it i was like is this an april fool's <laughs> joke that Mache kuchara just started following me and then he responded with like this emoji and i was like our first interaction and then that's um i guess how we how we met ish okay. um and then later i i think he 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 from his side he said that he he obviously heard about me after seeing or hearing about the uniswap drop i guess mm-hmm. um and then he was just like i think your work is cool so i started following you and then um, I remember I, I told my boyfriend about it at the time. I was like, I'm so excited. Like, Moshe just like, you know, messaged me, blah, 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 or whatever. Um, and then I was like, I have like one shot basically to, you know, sort of really cherish this moment. Because I was like, oh my God, can can you imagine if we did a collab together? That would be mm. insane. And then and I was like, but it's got to be like a really good opportunity or something. And then I think that I don't know, maybe he, the universe first works in really mysterious ways. I, um, maybe he like read my mind a, a while later, he sent me a message saying, Hey, I'm just thinking out loud that we should, you know, do a collaboration sometime. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and You're then, just like, um, Oh my God, what is happening? Yeah. That's a, yeah. what an amazing thing. That's a, that's it really, yeah. it really is. And, you know, to this day, I'm still humble and like so grateful that I get to work with him. I learn from him constantly. He's so talented. His skill is undeniable. He's just one of the few artists who, you know, on top of talent has really put in the work and time to really perfect his craft. And that's something that will always inspire me. Mm. Um, and then, so, you know, sort of how Shibuya started, I remember was this, some, like a producer came and was like, Oh, I want to give you like 250 grand to direct, you know, some kind of like a ser- series or love death and robots like thing or whatever. 
And then I was like, okay, there's only one person that I would ever want to work with on this. And it's Mache. And so I DM'd him being like, hey, like, you know, do you want to get on a call with me? I have this idea or something. And then when I told him about it, he was like, uh, I'm good. Thanks. And I was like, (laughs) oh, okay. Uh, like why? And then he was like, well, you know, like he was like, I don't think you should take their money. Like once you take other people's money for your project, then creatively, you know, you're just, Mm. it's, it's like a dead end basically. And you know, that was actually such good advice. Obviously I'm sure he's very experienced. I'm sure a bunch of people tried to give him money to, you know, produce something. And, um, so yeah. So then kind of like taking that back, I was thinking more about, okay, well, we're in this space right now with like NFTs being such a revolutionary thing that provides us our own platform for financing, you know? So I was like, I don't need to take this producer's money. We can just finance it ourselves. Like, you know, and then so... I sort of like got back on a call with him. I was like, can you get on a call? This is literally like three days later. Like, can you get on a call with me again? (laughs) You know, he's nice enough to say yes again. And then this time I pitched him like a very, very early rough vision of Shibuya, Mm -hmm. um, which is that, you know, really just to enable creators um, to create long form content, you know, from financing using like NFT sales and things like that. And then, you know, changing this, kind of relationship that you have with the audience in the past, which is like so passive. Cause you know, going back to the Pixar thing, I think um, my dream was never to just like make art, obviously after the Uniswap and fortune thing, which both had like, you know, really crazy big NFT sales. I was like, I don't think that my dream is to just like sell art at Sotheby's or whatever. You know, Mm. I think that my dream is still centered around like storytelling or sort of like film or, you know, long form content as a medium. Um, that's really what scratches my creative itch, I think. And then I'm sure for Mache, it is as well. And so we started talking about this and how can we, you know, nobody was doing filmmaking or, you know, things like that in the NFT space. We're like, right, how can right, we make yeah. this a reality? Yeah. And then so he was crazy enough to say, yes, I'm down to, you know, jam on this together and turn mm. this into a thing. And then now we have a company together. It's crazy. That's awesome. Did you work well together right away? Was it like, did it feel right pretty quickly? Or was there some bumps out the gate trying to figure, like, feel each other out? Like, what are we both doing? What's the role? Like, do we, like, how do we, like, that's always an interesting thing in the early days of a partnership. You know, I will forever have imposter syndrome from working with him. So, okay. Um, but I would say, I almost don't want to say this out loud because I don't want to jinx it. But yeah, I, I would say that it worked really well right away. But that's probably, you know, more to do with the fact that he is like carrying the team and I'm just kind of like his, <laughs> I'm just kind of like following along and like taking notes and like learning so much from him all the time that to me, it's always an amazing opportunity to even just mm. have any interaction with him. Right. And, you know, hopefully he, hopefully he finds working with me also, you know, productive and valuable. I'm sure him, he does because, why. well, the way you talk about when you, when someone talks about someone like the way you are about him right now, they probably have their pick of who they'd like to work with. So something tells me that he would probably have the same sentiment, whether you feel it about yourself or not, it doesn't seem like it would have gone this far if it weren't, you know, yeah, sort of a mutual I mean, feeling, I'm sure. Yeah. So um, definitely, you know, have insecurities and imposter syndrome, if that's not obvious enough, but that's much as to say that I am truly grateful to still be working with him. And I hope that we continue to work together for a long time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. So when, when you guys started working together, like you had one clear project in mind, you had had started Shibuya and then white rabbit kind of came next Um, out of that. I would say 
sort of came at the same time. I think initially we were just like, we want to make a really cool, you know, anime, um, you know, also like sort of interactive, but, you know, kind of telling the story of crypto also. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so that was White Rabbit sort of like came about, you know, obviously the name comes from like, you know, you know, taking the red pill and, you know, you know, Alice in Wonderland and also um, the matrix. And, you know, that's why it's called White Mm -hmm. Rabbit. Okay. Um, you know, just sort of like this whole idea of going down the rabbit hole, right? And then um, as we were sort of like building, you know, the tech uh, that was required to make this interactivity work for White Rabbit, then um, we were kind of like, oh, why don't we just turn it into a platform or, or you know, sort of like a tool that yeah, other, yeah, other yeah. creations can use as well. And then so that's kind of how Shibuya came about. So they kind of like okay. started together. Um, yeah, and then the name Shibuya comes from... Um, I think we were initially thinking about it being more of like a Times Square where, you know, there's like a lot of different screens and like different content to view. Um, but Times Square is like the boomerest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we were kind of like, what's the cool Japanese equivalent of that? And it's um, Shibuya Crossing. So that's how uh, we got that name. Cool. Okay. That's nice. So um, I guess one of my questions I really, enj- I, I love and hate asking everybody this, but it's it's super interesting. And especially with you having experienced everything you've just talked about with so parallel with crypto, Twitter and NFT boom. Um, and then obviously we're kind of in a new, I, I stay personally, like I kind of try to stay away from being concerned so much about where we're at in a market, like bearable, whatever, like it's never concerned me before, like before NFTs were a thing and sometimes things were busy and sometimes they weren't. And like, sometimes artists have, you know, put a lot into a project. It goes well, sometimes it doesn't, it's just, this is just kind of life. And I understand that we're all moving, you know, in a hive, you know, in, in terms of like the specific NFT market, and it's not what it used to be. That's fine. Um, it doesn't take away anything from the technology. It doesn't take away anything from like the potential of it. Um, like I think Zora is doing an incredible job. Not to like, I, they're not paying me to say this. I just, <laughs> but like, you know, like what's happening with base and 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 Zora, like kind of moving into things being more affordable, gas going down, people being able to buy in more without it being so cost prohibitive, I think is a really great direction. Um, hopefully brings more people in and, and just encourages people to collect and discover again. Um, but all that said, like the realities of money leaving and wallets leaving, or they're not being more new people every day and it being kind of like a net loss overall compared to like the boom that, you know, we're like a lot of us got to experience early on um, has been discouraging for a lot of people. Cause you think, okay, it's just not going to, there's not going to be these big splashy sales or it's not going to be the way that it was. Um, has that clouded things for you? Has that been discouraging for you? How have you, how have you handled that? Cause you've also been pretty honest about money having been a motivating factor, which I think is nice to hear. I think a lot of people try to play that down, like, you know, and it's not that you're saying you're in it for the money, but you realize this could be an opportunity and you could make money. And I think it's a very like normal, honest thing to say that. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm curious to know like how you've navigated, um, from both a creative and entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, um, things being more of a downturn, like how has that affected your, um, your drive, your motivation, um, you know, just overall compared to when it wasn't that way? Um, I think that, you know, what happened in the past two years, uh, have just been, uh, really, I think, 
um, reassuring for me as a, an artist and creative that um, my ideas are valuable. And then so it kind of drove me to want to create things that sort of um, stand the test of, I don't know, market conditions or time. Sure, sure. And, and so, yeah, obviously one of the main things that I had discovered is that a good content, you know, regardless of, you know, whether there's, there's like a pandemic outside or, you know, if there's like a financial crisis, like people will always want to watch something that makes them feel. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think what the storytelling really is um, comes from, you know, in life, we feel so much as people. And um, I think there's something so beautiful about taking those em- really intense emotions um, that you go through as life. And then um, it's hard enough already to sort of uh, reinterpret them through verbal words, you know, to mm-hmm. even just describe what you're feeling, but then to take those feelings and then use a completely new medium, whether it's filmmaking, animation, you know, through storytelling, and then um, craft something entirely new um, that people can then consume and, you know, either find relatable or healing or entertaining, sure. I think is one of the biggest um, joys in life for me. And then so, mm-hmm. Um, I think that I've been lucky to, you know, I definitely could have capitalized way more on, you know, the NFT bull market, um, Mm. you know, to to the point where I probably wouldn't need to worry about money for the rest of my life. But, you know, partially due to the whole imposter syndrome thing and, you know, other other reasons that I felt like, you know, were true to my own personal compass, Mm. I guess, that I did not do that either. I donated, I mean, you know, most of my NFT proceeds to charity. um, And so... I do want to ask you about that. I'd be remiss to not ask you about that because you like a lot of these sales were huge, but a lot of the money didn't go to you. Um, mm-hmm. Was that uh, like were, were most of these instances your decision to have that be the case, or were like some of these, you know, set up and like, hey, we're going to do this as a charity thing, or were you like, I'm, I mean, it doesn't really matter if this does a dollar or a million dollars, like I'm donating X amount or or whatever. Um, it's a pretty conscious decision on your part. Yeah, it was a conscious decision um, on every accord, uh, including the Uniswap one beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for the um, Fortune one too, I was like, if we're doing an NFT for this cover, then mm-hmm. 50% of it has to go to charity. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, well, my parents have been sort of really charitable people growing up. Um, so I think that, you know, watching them do that has been really inspiring. And I remember, um, you know, around the time that the Unisop thing happened, uh, just before there was really, really bad um, Asian hate crime, especially in the US, um, I think it was, you know, following the pandemic and everything. And this was uh, shortly after the, um, I think it was the Orlando shooting. And then I was reading about one of the victims and how, um, you know, like devastated they were. And I remember, you know, I didn't have that much money at the time, right? It was just before oh, everything crazy was happening. I had like a little bit of money. And so I, he was like, oh, if you want to support, like, here's my Venmo. And I remember like Venmoing him like $100 or something. And I was like, man, I really wish I could do more, you know? And then I was like, oh, well, uh, something that I've always wanted to do, even since the early days of my DeFi NFT days was, oh, I've always wanted to do a charity auction. Um, And so then I kind of thought like, okay, this Uniswap one can be a really, really good opportunity for that. Mm, Um, You know, whatever money it makes, it'll go to charity. And then so that's kind of how that started. Um, You know, it it just felt really important to me uh, at the time to give back. And I'm not going to lie, there were definitely times where I was like, 
Oh man, it'd be nice to just bug. Yeah, you're like, oh, I didn't know it was gonna make that much. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, that's a fair. That's fair though. I think it's good to like say that out loud because, like, uh, yeah, definitely, you're like, oh shit, like I thought. Yeah, huh? Okay, maybe I should have just said like up to a certain amount because like, like I could have been driving a Lambo by now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but really, I think um, I believe in karma as well. So um, I think that. Um, you know, not monetary aside, but just all of the opportunities and um, the amazing sort of like support uh, that mm-hmm. I got, you know, as a result of those um, far exceed any sort of like financial value that it could have ever brought to me. And, and that's, that's way more worth it, you know, and, and sure. um, it, it will always, you know, be a part of, I think my, my journey too, because I, you know, being an empath, I do feel, you know, I believe in, you know, the sort of like fairy tales like UBI and, you know, everyone sort of like, you know, sort of just like flattening out the, um, the playing field a little bit. And, you know, if I can do that myself, you know, by example, then hopefully Mm -hmm. other people would be inspired to do so as well. Um, so, you know, sort of to tie everything together is sort of believing in my ability or my artistic um, vision to be able to carry me through life and just have a sustainable lifestyle um, from yeah. that and any excess we can share with the world, I think is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, certainly uh, the amazing kind of opportunities keep coming your way. And I think like, it seems like, <laughs> seems like you've made good decisions and and that those things have worked out um, really, really well. I haven't even gotten into asking more about the um, the house of Lee and then, um, the Lincoln park video that you were a part of as well. Um, so kind of nearing somewhat the, somewhat the end here, although I still have a few more questions, but, um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about both of those projects. Cause that's very, those are quite current. So, um, I have a question I kind of want to end on, but, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how both of those came about and, um, the Lincoln Park one was nominated for a VMA as well, right? I know that was very exciting. So congrats. Um, but yeah, like, can you tell me about just are those projects that came about just the magical an email landed in my inbox or was there more like to do about them or like what, where, where, where did those kind of come from? Yeah, man, I really don't want to sound like hand wavy, um, but it, it really kind of is serendipitous that these things come about, you know, there are mm. certainly many other things in my life that I make more of an a- active effort to pursue that have never happened. So, you know, for anyone sure. listening, it's not like everything in my life just magically turns up at my door. That's like not how it goes, but genuinely with, um, the Lincoln park video, it was, um, I, I guess Mike Shinoda had, you know, seen white rabbit when it came out and then, you know, he was like, Oh, this is really cool. And then, so, um, w- or earlier or, maybe late last year. Yes. I think sometime in December last year, um, he messaged, um, Shay and I was like, Hey, uh, I was thinking out loud, you know, we're, you know, releasing this song in February and Mm -hmm. I was thinking we could use like a music video for it. Um, would you guys be interested? And I was like, "Uh, (laughs) yes. Was this, was a music, was a music video like on your radar or something? Maybe that would be fun to do. Or did you like them? What was like the thing that got you so excited about that? Man, you know, 
Um, I think this is where Jory will think that I am the biggest like manifester in life that she's she known did or something. Because she did mention this to me when we were chatting the other day. She's like, Emily is like big on kind of, but I, I I don't know. I mean, I think there's something that's not a fake thing. There's you know, yeah, it, it's funny. Um, I upon starting to work with Jory, I told her one of the big things that I wanted to do was I was like, I want to direct a music video. And mm-hmm. then I was like, and she was like, okay, cool. You know, I have a history of directing music or, or working on music videos. Mm-hmm. We can like start small and things like that. That's how people usually build it. I was like, no, no, no. You're going to want to like, small, start first, small. <laughs> yeah. I was like, the first one I want to do needs to be like a really, really big band. And then she, like her and Matt, who I work with her kind of like, okay, cool. Well, mm-hmm. you know, see if that'll happen. And then, and then, you know, this opportunity like shows up um, and I was like, well, you know, we got to take it. Right. Um, so yeah, directing a music video was something that was on my mind um, that I wanted to try out. Um, and I'm so lucky, obviously, that it was such a big opportunity too. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so much of my work, I think, is inspired by music. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that. I, I definitely mentioned it in other you know, interviews that I just like love listening to music. It's such a big part of my life. And so a lot of my work you know, comes from like listening to music and then seeing visuals and then being inspired from that. So um, it really helps when the music is good. So thankfully, mm-hmm. you know, when um, Mike and the team sent over the first, you know, um, version of Lost that we could listen to, um, I listened to it and I was like, it's a banger. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a good song. And then, so it was really easy to be inspired by that yeah, and make yeah. a music video out of it, you know? So um, the whole thing definitely just came together so nicely. Um, that's not to say it was a very, very tight schedule. And Mache and I both almost died um, working on such a tight schedule. So um, a lot you know, of late nights and just lot like of waiting late for nights. renders, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, very, very hard work. But yeah, oh. I mean, it definitely did pay off. You know, I never, I remember before the Unisop um, video, I had speaking of manifestation i remember writing on a piece of paper at the time being like things that i want to happen this year and the first one was like i want i would like to be interviewed by someone and Mm. then i think um another one was i was like oh i would also like to have a a video that has five hundred thousand views okay um like specifically i wrote five hundred thousand views um and because at that time the video any video that i had put out the most that it had views i think was like forty thousand. so you know it was like a big Jump, sure, right? Yeah, but yeah. I was just like, you know, and then like lo and behold, literally, you know, right after the, the Unisoft thing happened, it was the first video, it reached like 700,000 views in the first yeah. like 24 hours. And then a bunch of interviews started rolling in. And then, and then I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. You know, I wonder then when I'm going to have like my first million and also like, you know, music video and that kind of thing. And then obviously the Lincoln Park uh, video, you know, I think in the first two days, it got like 10 million views, which is yeah, just like yeah. insane. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, then I remember casually mentioning to Jory too, I was like, LOL, you know, like, it, can we submit this for like, you know, VMAs or awards or something? And I don't even know how that stuff works. I don't think you submit or anything. And then, you know, I just mentioned in passing, we forgot about it. And then now, uh, six months later, we, I got a text from Jory being like, Guess oh my what? god i just got a text from lincoln park's <laughs> manager saying that that video got nominated for vma so um life is crazy you know? yeah congrats that's that's so cool i love that story and uh you know the manifesting thing is not something i've necessarily 
thought about when I've sat down, I'm big on, on new year's stuff. And it's not even like new year's resolution so much as like just the idea of a fresh start, um, or like a clean slate, uh, you know, even if it's kind of made up and we like sort of come up with this concept, it doesn't really matter. Cause to me, it's still, I just feel like it's a new calendar. And yeah, a lot of times I'm like, okay, this year, you know, and you write a few things down and maybe you forget about them or whatever, but something about committing that to the page from your brain and actually making that a physical thing and looking at it. I don't know. There's some power in that for sure. I mean, there really is just like, you know, there's you know, a lot of artists whereby, you know, journaling or writing or morning pages or things like that. And, and I, I think there's just the exercise and practice of, of like, making something permanent that otherwise is a very sort of passing moment in your mind, a thought that just is fleeting. It comes and goes. It'd be cool to do that, but probably never. There's a power for sure in, in, in writing that down or, or making that, you know, saying it out loud to somebody or whatever. There's an honesty in it, I think, and like a vulnerability yeah. that whether or not that actually makes something happen or not, I think, um, I think there's like those little things that we do that leads up to those opportunities happening that probably, you know, is at the core of, of making those realities happen. You know, this reminds me of, I literally came across a Bruce Lee quote earlier today. Good segue. That I saw on good segue. Yeah. Good segue. <laughs> yeah. But the quote uh, was don't speak negatively about yourself. Even as a joke, your body doesn't know the difference. Words are energy mm. and cast spells. And that's why it's called spelling. Um, change the way you speak about yourself and you can change your life. Mm. What you're not changing, you're also choosing. So I found this quote really interesting. Um, you know, I think, when I was young, my dad used to show me a lot of videos about like quantum physics too. Now we're getting into the whole like, you know, voodoo <laughs> sci-fi part of the podcast where quantum physics videos that, yeah, think that I'm crazy. Um, but, you know, I do, you know, I feel like there's some weird link between like quantum physics and not like manifestation, but you know, when people say like, oh, words are energy or, you know, like thoughts mm -hmm. are energy. And I feel like yeah. there's just like, um, we can do a whole other set separate podcast about this oh, where I go sure, more yeah. deep dive into it. But, you know, long story short is I think there's definitely a link between um, quantum physics and how, you know, this kind of stuff works. I don't think it's just fake, right? Um, when sure. you're like putting negative thoughts out there or positive, like both, I think, affect, you know, you and like the world around you, um, which is probably partially linked to manifestation. Um, so yeah, good segue into uh, the so learnings of Bruce Lee. So quickly, should we go back? Should I make sure to go back and edit out anytime you mention imposter syndrome or that you weren't like good enough for a certain opportunity know, while right? it was happening? Or? This is a very, very <laughs> uh, self-rounding episode where yeah, I don't yeah. take but, my but own that, advice. That is, but that is a, that's a, I feel like that's a lifelong practice, especially for an artist and any artist, no matter who they are, is an, an emotional in, person in touch with some part of their brain that people who aren't sort of natural born like artist types sometimes aren't as much. And I think we're always telling ourselves like, we're not good enough. Like even the best artists I know for sure are struggling on some level of that. So I think it's sort of a lifelong practice to talk about yourself in the positive, or at least not put negative spins on things, even when it's attempting to do so. Um, but anyways, sure. as kind of winding down, I would love, cause this seems like the most recent, um, thing, but the Bruce Lee series, house of Lee, um, is kind of project kind of flowing through Shibuya. And, um, so yeah, can you tell me about that project and how it came about and just like, what are you excited about with it? Um, I mean, yeah. Um, another, you know, serendipitous meet cute was, um, at art on internet 
was making a sort of a docu-series, um, you know, f- profiling artists. And then so they were making a people pleaser one. And then naturally mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, I'll talk about White Rabbit and Shibuya um, in my episode. And then so as I was talking about that, the production company that they had hired, which is called Black Buddha, um, that was doing the video, um, the guy who owns it, uh, his name is Dennis, and he works clo- very closely with Shannon um, on at the Bruce Lee Foundation. Um, okay. And then so I Shannon think being Bruce seen, Lee's daughter, yes, Shannon yeah. being Shannon Lee, Bruce Lee's daughter, uh, iconic. And so, um, you know, when Dennis had seen this, he was like, oh, this is interesting. And then I think he brought it up to Shannon and then she watched White Rabbit and she was like, mm. wow, I love what they're doing. I love this style. And then so that's when conversations started happening. They were like, well, we've had, you know, ideas to do a Bruce Lee anime for a really long time. But, sure. um, you know, as with basically the whole story arc of Shibuya, you know, traditional Hollywood, um, it's just a terrible, terrible system to go through. You know, mm. I think it's so bureaucratic and political in so many ways. And it's so backwards um, as reflected by all the strikes that are happening right now. Yeah. Too. I was going to say, can you even talk about this or you're not saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're going to come after me. Um, and then, so um, I think Shannon, found something really cool about the way that we were making stuff happen, you know, sort of mm-hmm. in a grassrooted way by bypassing traditional Hollywood um, and, you know, not having to give up complete creative ownership sure, sure, sort yeah. of, of our corporate overlords um, seemed very attempting. Um, so uh, she, you know, kind of initially brought up this idea that she had for House of Lee and, um, well, you know, what really drew me to it was, you know, so many of the aspects of like spirituality and, you know, inner work and, you know, sort of like fighting your inner demons and overcoming hardship that made mm. me really compelled um, to this idea. And then, so yeah, that's how we started. This is probably like October of last year. So that's when the conversations first started happening. And then we started working together and developing this. And then in April, we did an open edition. Um, and then uh, that went really well. And then, you know, we sold like 49,000 um nfts from the open edition and then um now we're developing the anime and you know it sort of was all like really really building up to this moment because um like i said just two days ago they were re-releasing enter the dragon because it was the 50th anniversary um and then ahead of the movie when the trailers are playing um they allowed us a slot to play the house of lee trailer and then so that's sort of like what I was working on. Um, and it was great. You know, we had worked so hard on this trailer and released it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I was, um, pretty involved. Like, you know, I got back to the drawing board and actually did some drawing for the trailer too. And then, you know, when we released it, it was really awesome. I, I mean, I, we got so much press around it, even just like on Instagram or TikTok, like uh, people are just so excited about it. I'd never, I feel like, I mean, Bruce Lee definitely is in the zeitgeist. So it's, you know, to say yeah. like that when you get to be a project yeah. has crossed over into the chasm, it feels like that's really cool. That's huge. Um, yeah. I mean, what's hilarious is I literally flew to New York to see this movie and I was like, Oh my God, like it's the first time I can see my own work on the big screen too. Mm. And that, oh, that magazine literally arrived. moment. We literally arrived like three minutes too late. So I actually just oh, missed no. <laughs> entirely. <laughs> and there's no way to make that up. You can't be like, can yeah. you send me the trailer? Like, well, you know what it will. Can you guys yeah. rewind? Like, uh, so sorry. <laughs> I actually did not get to see my own trailer. But, but you do know fine. it showed. You know for sure that it aired. It was part yes. of it. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> um. So, you know, I'll just pretend that I saw it. Wipes yeah. tears. You know, I keep telling myself, I was like, it's okay. I'll watch 
like the actual thing when it comes out on the big yeah. screen. Uh, um, well, so you'll you'll great, get that yeah. moment still, I'm sure. Well, yeah, that's super so exciting. It's an ongoing yeah. project. You know, people can just literally Google House of Lee. It's all over mm-hmm. the internet now, which yeah. is great. People are excited about it. They're excited about the 90s, like retro anime look that we're yeah. going for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's something that's super exciting. And we'll yeah. see where it goes. Right on. Um, so the qu- last question I wanted to ask is how do you... Well, and I don't know, like when, you know, you last experienced this and obviously right now you're in the middle of this, you know, project and probably other projects too. But, um, I like to ask about after projects are done, how you deal with that sort of void of like, oh, like that's a wrap. And then, and then I guess to kind of end on like a less of a work note, like what, like, what do you, what, like, what, what do you like to do outside of, you know, being in, you know, working on all this stuff that, you know, as someone who spends so much time, like even when I have free time, I'm like, like if my kids are taking a nap, like I kind of want to be at my laptop working on something. And it's not because I'm necessarily workaholic, but like, I'm excited to get back to something that I've been excited to work on. And, you know, so it's why I've like really made an intentional shift. For example, like when I work out, like I really, really try to do it in the morning now so that it's not like eating away at me in the middle of the day or like in the evening, like I already did that thing. I can really focus on this now. I can kind of compartmentalize like the things that I need to do or whatever. Um, but, um, yeah. How, how, how about you? What's the, what's the, what's like the non-work when work's over? Like, what are we doing? Is it? Yeah. Oh, what's, you know, people think that I'm like a giant workaholic, uh, you know, maybe I think it's a probably a subjective scale. Um, but I'm actually not, I think I love just like doing nothing or I like just like watching TV shows in my free time or, you know, hanging out with friends. Mm -hmm. Um, a a lot of times I'll actually just sit in front of my computer and like not be working. I'm very much like, um, a procrastinator. And then, so my work feels more like in sprints rather than like a constant I'm always working. It's just like when there's like a deadline or something, I'll put in a lot of work and then I'll just do nothing for a while. Um, (laughs) and something that I would hope to get better at is sort of like celebrating my wins. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that since the Uniswap thing, um, everything that happened, you know, I feel like it's so big and then like, there's so much of a shock that I I just kind of like, Oh, I I don't know. I can't deal with this. And I just move on to the next thing kind of. Um, so yeah, I think I want to learn to more just like, Oh, you know, pat yourself on the back and be like, you did that. Like, that's cool. Um, so that's something I want to work on doing more. What would you do? Would you like you do you do vacation much? I mean, you, you're pretty nomadic as you as we started off the conversation yeah. with. So traveling is already seems like it's sort of a I don't know, maybe sort of a naturally a part of your life already. Um, you know, when I finished a huge project of mine uh, in 2022, um, you know, just like had this release, just this emotional release of feeling like I don't have to open these files again, and it was very surreal to sort of like put them in my the way I like have my files. I'm like I labeled it in this archive there that's done now. Um, and I like really like was very intentional for the first time. And again, like I've not been good at this before, just like you said, stopping and smelling the roses and celebrating a win. But I really tried to take like a couple, like I took my dog to the dog beach one day and I had no anxiety about Aww. it. I didn't feel like, Oh, I should be working. I was like, Nope, really just spend a few hours at the beach with your dog right now. That's all you got to do. <laughs> like living in the moment yeah. in the internet age as an artist, as an independent artist where there's a constant pressure of needing to work, it is hard to stop and slow down and mm-hmm. just like not think about that stuff. And, um, when a project's done, it is a great opportunity to do that, but it is tempting to be like, all right, now what, 
Um, yeah. So I'm glad absolutely. to hear that. But another thing you probably work on for the rest of your life, like actually stopping and, and figuring out like how to really process all that and enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe after you enter your thirties, so much of your life or work, um, goes into doing inner work. I think that's super important too, Mm -hmm. you know? So whether it's like studying up on, you know, human psychology or I don't know, like meditation, things like Mm -hmm. that, I think are, are, um, things that I I strive to do more of now too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've just recently tried to the idea of meditation for me has always been probably what a lot of people are like, I don't need that. Or like, eh, <laughs> but I, I finally paid for a nap and I'm not just going to try this. And, you know, even just like at night to wind down because my brain is just always moving so fast. And when I've mm-hmm. done it, there's no denying. It's like, even just like in little, you know, in little drips here and there of trying it, I'm like, okay, I do kind of get it. I, I, you know, like you enter a different frame of mind that is no longer occupied by a screen or by like, you know, anxiety of your work and, just mm-hmm. like with your talking about manifesting or removing the negative stuff. I mean, the, the idea of mindfulness as a creative person is a, cha- a real challenge to do well and a practice, truly yeah. a practice, not just like, Oh, like the idea of like calling something a practice. And it's a, like, no, it really is a, a thing you can get good at, but you got to, you got to really want to do that. It's a, it's about discipline. Right. So yeah, I yeah. think, you know, it's, it's always a balance, you know, I think it's a nice, probably point to end at which is just as artists you know there is that we need that drive we need that insecurity i think a lot of Mm. what puts out artwork is coming from that insecurity or um you know like we can't i think oftentimes we won't improve our work if we don't have that sort of critical lens on ourselves too so um both are important i think and it's all about that lifelong journey of just like finding this balance um Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. These are selfishly. I say this to like every guest that I don't know or hadn't met before, you know, I just met, but these are always for me, just like what a cool, you know, thing I get to do to just get to know somebody. <laughs> and then we record yeah. it and put it out there for the world. But um, I really, really admire your story. I think you um, have just played things so well. Um, and again, like whether you think there's certain things you could have done differently. I mean, we all could, but I really um, like the timing of your journey and like where you kind of came, came about and like, and when is so very different from mine, but there's so many parallels still. And, you know, in ways that we owe to the internet and these sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of strange ways and and the way that life moves and crosses paths with people that change your life and your relationship to the other art, you know, artists and, um, clients and and you know I, yeah we didn't even get into i'm sure there's plenty more to, stuff to have gotten into but um i think you've um laid quite the foundation for i mean the what you've done just in the last couple of years is just pretty mind-boggling i think um so it's it's fun to be what feels like at the outset of a really exciting career um you know ahead so to me like when i hear all this stuff i'm like wow just getting started that's wild like good for you it's just super cool and and um and also you're good, you're a good public speaker too. And I, I spoke pretty early on in my career and I'm so glad it's not, it wasn't recorded and put on YouTube for the world to see because your, your talks, you know, it was a good way to get to know your, your work a bit, like leading up to this. And I'm just, I'm grateful. My first one was so long ago that nobody recorded it and put it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's not as bad as you think it is, but, um, no, thank you. I really appreciate that. This is yeah, yeah. an amazing conversation. You're a great interviewer. And, oh, thank um, you. I enjoyed these so much. It was just a pleasant time. 
Cool. Well, I appreciate your time and I'm sure we'll talk to you soon and look forward to, uh, to seeing House of Leah. When, by the way, what's the timing on, on that? 2024, right? Maybe even a little later, starting to get people yeah. excited now. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, as these things go, we always try to uh, have it come out as soon as possible, but there's a lot of dependencies and I yep. think um, good art is always worth the wait. So <laughs> definitely sounds good. I like that as a perfect, perfect line to end on. All right, Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.